Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Coming In. I'm Claire Gurley, and I am so excited to have you here with us today. If it's your first time, Coming In is a podcast where we talk about issues relating to gender, sex, and sexuality. We are coming from a place of curiosity, so you can leave any judgment at the door. We don't need it here. Um, You are welcome here as you are with all of your own unique experiences and perspectives. Um, We are really happy to have you. If you want to follow us on Instagram, you can find us at Coming In Project. This is actually more than just a podcast. I'm collaborating with each of these podcast guests on artwork that's going to be shown in a gallery show at the beginning of March here in Nashville. If you are local, I'd really love to see you at our show. Um, You can find all of the details on our Instagram. Again, that's at Coming In Project. I'm really excited to get into our conversation today about microaggression. Um, But before we do, I just want to give a quick side note about um, my audio situation. I am totally new to podcast recording and I appreciate you being gracious and kind to me um, because I majored in studio art even though I went to a school with a great audio engineering program. And um, let's just say that I don't always know the best way to record audio. However, I have an amazing editor, shout out to Becca, who has put in the work to make sure that we can hear and enjoy this episode. So I apologize that the audio is not as balanced as it could be, um, but thank you, Becca, for making sure that we can hear and enjoy this whole conversation because it is a good one. I am talking to my favorite professor I've ever had today. Um, Her name is Michelle. I learn so much from her every time she opens her mouth, whether it's about um, painting and art or microaggression and how we should treat other people or just the world in general. She has a wealth of knowledge and insight, and I can't wait for you to hear from her. Today's topic is microaggressions. We are talking about um, microaggressions that are more targeted toward gender and sexuality, but we're also talking about microaggressions in a general sense. We're going to talk about mental illness, and of course, you can't really talk about microaggressions without talking about race as well. This is a huge topic, and I wish that we had all the time in the world to talk about it, but unfortunately, our cutoff was about 45 minutes, so we couldn't quite get into everything. Um, I am attaching additional resources in the show notes. Um, It's really important. The language we use matters and um, being kind to people matters and being intentional um, is an important and sometimes really easy thing to do. Um, There are changes that we can make in the way that we talk to people that will make them feel more loved and welcome. And we're going to get into it in just a minute here, but feel free to check out those resources in the show notes as well. As always, I am humbled and grateful to have you with us here today. Uh, Thanks for showing up. Thanks for being kind. And please enjoy today's episode. Michelle, thank you so much for coming. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Clara. It's an honor to be here with you. And this is, for listeners at home, this is my first time meeting Michelle in person. She was my professor in college, and due to Zoom University, um, we have yet to meet in person until now. So this is a very special conversation you're witnessing back at home. Um, Michelle, a question that I like to ask all of our guests here, fun little get to know you game. Um, Since this is a podcast about sex and sexuality, can you tell us how you first learned about sex? 
upstairs at her house and said, oh my gosh, you have to like press play on the VHS recorder. And I was like really scared, but I thought, well, we always watch cartoons together, so I'm sure it's fine. And so I pressed play and on this ancient old TV up comes this image of a pool and a pool house and, and this <laughs> human sitting in a chair at the pool house and this other human walking around the pool almost naked. And I'm like, what's happening? Uh, it was really confusing. And um, needless to say, some very, very interesting sexual acts started to happen on the screen to which my tiny brain was unable to process and was like, I don't think I should be watching this. Um, and right as everything was like getting going, um, my friend's mother came in the front door and was like, I'm home. Oh I'm no. Here. And so we both freaked out and like pressed pause instead of stop and then ran into the closet and hid. Um, and <laughs> we were so afraid that like we were going to get in trouble. And we didn't um, because the mother decided to blame the father for that. Just like, so um, yeah, that's how I discovered about sex. So like, yeah, there it is. I have a feeling the eight-year-olds did not buy the VHS tape, so oh goodness, no. <laughs> would not make sense to blame you guys. That's yeah. funny. Yeah. For any um, children listening at home or teenagers, uh, a VHS is how we used to um, consume media back in the day. Um, and by we, I mean me until like the age of six when the DVD player came out. Anyway, um, let's get into it then. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for your vulnerability. Can you tell us a little bit about what you do now? Formerly my professor, what are you doing? Um, what are you doing now? Yeah. yeah. And 
in terms of examples, I've got some like very simple stuff here. Like some examples would be men and women have equal opportunities for achievement. Gender plays no part in who we hire. America's land of opportunity. You know, everyone can succeed in this society if they work hard enough. Or even just labeling a female committee committee chair or dean as a bitch while describing a male counterpart as a forceful leader. Um, showing surprise when a feminine woman turns out to be a lesbian. These are just some examples kind of showing what you said of like the intention behind them not quite matching what's being said. Um, and do you have any sort of stories or examples that can put this into a real world context for folks? So the main researcher uh, on microaggressions is a human named Daryl Wingsue, S-U-E. And uh, they have a fabulous book called Microaggressions in Everyday Life, Race, Gender, and Sexual Orientation. Uh, so I do highly recommend reading that. I think that that is a great resource um, to grow your understanding. And I think for the longest time, I questioned if I had ever experienced microaggressions because I didn't understand that there are three types. So we can break down the umbrella term. Uh, one of the first types is micro-insults. And that's where um, there's communication of insensitivity, uh, rudeness um, that can really demean a person's identity. Mm -hmm. Then you have micro-assaults, and that is where you have these verbal or nonverbal attacks that are intended to hurt a victim, either through name-calling, avoidant behavior, or purposefully discriminatory actions. Mm -hmm. And finally, you have micro-invalidations. And this is where I think I started to get a heavy bomb moment. This is where uh, communication can be put out that excludes, negates, or nullifies the thoughts, feelings, or reality of other persons belonging to different marginalized groups. Mm. So I think um, from my own lived experiences, micro-invalidations had been happening to me my whole life. Um, as someone who identifies uh, as a female and uses she, her, and her pronouns, I didn't realize that when I would be in meetings, when I would have moments um, where I would speak up and say something, that there was often another individual in the room who seemingly was male, who would then mansplain over what I had just said. And that was from, you know, reflecting on that, realizing that that's a micro-invalidation um, from a place of harm that over the time in my life impacted me and my ability to have the wisdom and the understanding to know that I had done nothing wrong in that situation. Um, because micro-aggressions, micro invalidations affect a person on such a level that it causes significant trauma, um, both psychologically and physically for the person, and they will carry it with them throughout their life unless they can begin a healing journey. Yeah. Ugh, talking about how it affects you physically, I just started reading The Body Keeps the Score by an author whose name I don't remember, but we'll link in the show notes. And um, I'm learning about how the trauma we face really manifests itself over time when we don't realize it. You started touching on that, but 
I'm sure these microaggressions, micro assaults, micro insults that people face sometimes on a daily basis, sometimes when they're growing up in school or in their home and going into the professional workplace, um, how, how can those manifest over time? Yeah, so over time, um, there is evidence, um, research on this, uh, that there's detrimental uh, health consequences, psychological harms such as anger, stress, anxiety, depression. Um, specifically, PTS symptoms um, that will affect people to engage in high-risk behaviors such mm -hmm. as drug and alcohol use, involvement in aggression, fights, um, in their ability to try to cope with these symptoms that are very much inside of them. Mm -hmm. So when you internalize these and you carry them with you and you don't um, have the ability to start to unpack them and to reflect and to, uh, you're going to hear me say heal a lot, um, mm -hmm. to heal from the inside out. Um, you are absolutely right, Clara. There is evidence now that is highly linked to the physicality of our body being affected. Um, and I love the book you mentioned. Um, <laughs> I will also share another book that I'm just starting to read, um, which has, <laughs> which has really affected me. Um, the myth of normal by Gabor Mate. It just came out about maybe a month ago. Uh, and it is, uh, he's a former MD. Um, he's in his seventies now <laughs> and he is, finding all of the research um, that he's able to put it together in this book to help people understand that when they have experienced suffering, trauma, at any point in their life that they haven't been able to heal from, our body will absorb it. And there are actual um, links, um, correlations between our body's ability to process or unprocess that, leading to higher rates of cancer, autoimmune diseases, um, mental health concerns, and it often does affect uh, females more than males, um, and it affects non-binary individuals as well. Um, and it has helped me understand part of my own journey, as you know and are aware of, um, with my own medical health conditions um, and surrounding ovarian cancer. So uh, I didn't fully understand how much trauma I was carrying with me in my life uh, and how I needed to start to heal myself from inside <clears throat> and remove myself from situations that were extremely toxic. And that can be really hard. You know, it's easy to look at that and say, from some perspectives, um, it's just a joke. Why is it affecting you to that extreme? Or um, why don't you just leave if it's that bad? And I, I, I want to speak to that because I understand where people are coming from. Perhaps if they have been privileged enough to not necessarily have this experience or perhaps have this have had this experience but haven't maybe realized or processed it yet. Um, just that it can be really difficult to call out these microaggressions when we witness them in a way that's safe and also effective. Um, I have really struggled with that in the workplace and um, in high school and in college, having 
people say things um, regarding my sexuality, such as, you know, oh, I don't agree with such and such, but I love everyone. I just think they're going to hell. You know, simple things that might seem innocuous, but really, if you hear them for years on end, can weigh upon you or make you feel really unsafe. And when calling them out, you get very shut down, very, if it's a joke, such as I had a boss say to a gay employee, um, oh, my wife wants us to go to that gay bar, but I don't want to get raped. And it was sort of understood by everyone that if we called out that that was a homophobic thing to say, it would come back with, well, it's just a joke. Can you not take a joke? I've had my work contract explained to me with our, you know, um, employee handbook and had my boss say, and we have a zero tolerance for harassment or like sexual assault, but I mean, jokes are jokes. And I, I just really want to, want to speak to that. How, how can you approach this situation where some people are really going to say jokes are jokes and not take seriously how you feel? Like how, how do you call out this behavior or how do you leave and how do you know which one to do in any scenario? There's a really uh, helpful analogy of understanding microaggressions. Uh, that is that they can be like mosquito bites. <laughs> and so if you've ever been bitten by a mosquito, you're aware of it and it hurts. And it's you know going to be there for a while. You're going to feel it. But there are some people who are bitten more than others. And when you get bitten all the time, you are going to start to embody that. And when you finally get bit enough times, you're going to have a reaction to it. And then, unfortunately, people can end up being stereotyped, can end up being unfairly given biases towards when none of that is actually their doing. Mm -hmm. So you bring up a couple of really good points, um, and you talked about some examples as well. I'd love to just take a minute to walk us through a couple of other examples. Please. And what they actually, how they actually impact another human being. Mm. Um, because there are microaggressions out there that float around, as you're saying, um, and need to start being brought to the surface so that people can become more aware so that if they're unintentionally, unintentionally harming, they can begin to not do so. Mm. Um, so there's, I think some of the classic examples um, that people will hear are asking someone, where are you from? Mm. Um, well, where are you really from? Mm. Or you speak English very well. Um, what are you? You're so exotic. What are you? Oh, yeah. A human. Yeah. What? And so... All of this insinuates that that person is not who they are. Mm. Um, it does not allow that person to feel like they are themselves in that moment. Um, and it creates uh, an, an unfortunate situation, right, for that human to experience over and over and over. Yeah. Um, it's just not cool to ask, right? Like we should be beyond that. If we are able to 
understand and meet each other in a place where we can just accept each other for who we are. We don't need to say, where are you really from? You got it. We're human. Let's begin there. Um, other language uh, that can be offensive, especially when we think about mental health concerns in our society right now. I'm really OCD about my files. Oh, I can't read. I'm so dyslexic today. Or that's so crazy. Oh, I'm guilty on that one. We all are. Yeah. But my Angelou, if we can do better, we should be doing better, right? Oh. Paraphrasing. Oh. So that's ableist language when we say mm -hmm. those types of things. And it trivializes or makes light of very serious health consequences that individuals are having. So when I got into the knowledge of crazy, uh, and I was like, oh yeah, I've done that. I've got to watch my language. I can do better. Um, crazy often means either intense or absurd. And if we take the time to think a little harder, we can realize I don't have to say that word right now. I can figure out. I can level up. And do I mean intense or do I mean absurd? <laughs> if I mean intense, I can also say fascinating extreme. If I mean absurd, I can say outrageous, ridiculous, unreasonable. Mm. And what I've discovered is that when I take the time to reflect before I speak, which is no easy task, <laughs> and I want to say, that's so crazy, but I pause and I really think about the story, the narrative that the person shared with me, and I decide to go with a different word. And I say, wow, that's really absurd. Mm. I find that the other person I'm sharing a conversation with begins to share more. Mm. And when I say, that's so crazy, it almost ends the conversation. That's fascinating. Let's see what I did there. <laughs> no, really, that's that you've witnessed the, the difference in conversation and just that it takes that extra moment of reflection, which I mean, in an instant age where everything is right now, right away, it's, it's also really easy to get your words out right now, right away and kind of impossible to make them ever go away. So it should be a time where we're taking more time to reflect um, because our words are not, once you put it on the internet, doesn't matter if you delete it, it's, it's there. Um, and if you're saying something that's going to probably really hurt someone else, whether or not you know, it, it can be worth just taking a time to think about, oh, what, are, what is the language I'm using here? What do I mean? And is that, am I saying what I mean? And sometimes when someone points that out, like now, mm. I'm always so aware when someone uses the word crazy. <laughs> and I'm like, no, we have other choices. We, our words are so fun and creation. We can, we can use and choose something else. Mm. Um, but I think, you know, thinking about language um, around sexual orientation and mm -hmm. gender, some of the hurtful microaggressions that can come about um, are like, you don't look gay. Yep. I get that one a lot. I don't see what the fuss is about all these pronouns. If I see a woman, I say she, her. If I see a man, I say he, him. Or I can't wrap my head around they, them, theirs. It's not even proper English. And all of these things deny a person their identity, their safety. Um, it promotes exclusion from some assumed standard that doesn't really exist. And I use the word standard there carefully. Um, I've seen the word normal used instead. But as my students have told me, normal is just a setting on a washing machine and there's no place to use it. So instead of normal, what we really mean is a standard where we're trying to destigmatize 
something that is typical, general, average. There's mm. so many other words to use. Yeah. And you're right. This affects race as well. Yes. And I think some of the ones that really need to be addressed there, and you can always double around. Yes. People saying um, microaggressions towards, I don't see color. <laughs> I see that all the research I did on microaggression, that was like number one, is like, that is not, you think you are saying this nice statement, but what you're doing is invalidating their entire existence and experience as a person of color. That is not a helpful statement. Can we take it out of our vernacular, please? <laughs> Continue. I'm colorblind. There's only one race, the human race. And I was raised to treat everyone the same, as you just stated. So you're right. This denies a person their racial and ethnic experience. Yeah. It denies them their individual as a cultural being. And I think that the, the problem that's happening in our society is we're at that, that beautiful shifting point where the more we can get this out there, the more we can begin to grow our awareness so that we're not hurting other people. I think a lot of people probably from like around 1975 and onward were told that saying things like, I don't see color, I'm colorblind, were good things to say, that that shows that you are a non-racist, but Ibram Kendi has taught us that there's being non-racist and there's being anti-racist. And if we're going to go there, we need to take those actionable item steps to go there and we can change our language. We can understand that that's not okay to say anymore and we can choose a new path. It takes incredible courage and humility to take in new information and let it change the way you live your life. It's not an easy thing to do. And it really requires like recognizing things in yourself that aren't fun to recognize and a change in behavior. And neither of those things are easy to do. And I, I want to say that, that taking crazy out of your vocabulary isn't easy or um, it should, it should be easier to be anti-racist, but being non-racist is not, is not enough. Um, I, yeah, I really thank you for making sure we come into that conversation because we can't we can't ignore that when talking about this and you asked me what one can do when you find yourself in a situation where microaggressions have happened either to you or perhaps to someone around you there are ways to empower yourself um, and to empower others around you and again the more we grow this awareness perhaps the better we can be with time yeah uh, one of the biggest things is called nonviolent communication. And this is a four step process uh, that I try to remember um, for myself. Actually, I have it written down in a notebook that I carry with me and I have <laughs> my phone as well so, because you know, I'm going to forget right. what happens. So the first step is uh, to state your observations without evaluation. So you intervene. Now, when you make that decision to intervene, you do have to make sure you are safe. So you have to make a decision. For myself personally, the way I feel safe is to make sure that I am not alone, um, that I have friends with me, that I have someone with me who I trust, who I know will also be a witness to whatever is happening or about to happen. So I'm going to intervene. Uh, I'm going to state those observations that I see, right, that is happening. 
Uh, and then the second step is to think about the feelings separated from thoughts. So if I state my observations, I, you know, when I see you approach this person or when I heard you say these words, I feel that you might be causing harm. I feel like this is shifting the universe that we exist in. Step three is going back to our values. And that's the one that always stays with me is how do I connect with someone? I think about our values. So I need this to not be happening or this person clearly is not responding to what you just did. I think we have some shared values here. I think we can remember that we are in this moment. And then thinking of the outcome that you would like to have happen. Thinking of how to create the situation so that it becomes safer. And I've heard a great technique, okay, right, when you intervene. And I, I always use this now, and it, it works without fail, and I just am so impressed by it. It doesn't matter if you are outside of a grocery store and you witness a microaggression, or if you are in a classroom and something happens, or on a campus, or wherever you might be. Let's say there's two individuals and you are not actually part of it, or perhaps you are. The best intervention I've ever heard was, don't I know your mother? And you make eye contact with one of them and you say it again. Don't I know your mother? And cognitively, the person who usually was doing the microaggression to someone is going to have a break where they're like, oh, do you know my mother? <laughs> and it's going to affect them. And it's going to cause enough of a psychological pause for them to not be so geared towards the microaggression and whatever unfortunate hate is inside of them to allow for that space, that intervening space, to where the next step is to say, yeah, I think I do. I think, I mean, I think like I share values with your mom, like that humans matter, like we all matter here. And like, we're outside of a grocery store, so like <laughs> we all like food. Aren't we here to just grocery shop? Can we just like de-escalate this? I would love for this to start to simmer down. Have you tried that? Oh yeah. And has it has it worked? Yes. That's incredible. And it's gonna be context related. But right. I mean, the important thing is, and I always do it with friends, mm -hmm. um, because I think the important thing to remember too is if you find yourself alone and you have a microaggression done to you or you witness one and you're not safe. And don't feel like you can get involved because you're afraid you might get punched in the face or you might be involved in a way you don't want to be involved. Yeah. That's when I look around for someone who seems to be an authoritative figure, whether it's a supervisor, a manager, um, someone who is significantly larger than me um, as a female and not that big in stature. But if I can find someone to say, hey, I need your help. Um, hey, something is happening outside of your store. Hey, we are on a university campus. This is not cool. I'm mm -hmm. looking for campus security. You know, I'm going to try my best to make sure that I am not going to be the only person if I don't feel safe. Yeah. So I want to take a minute just to share uh, other um, sort of empowerment phrases that I think can help in terms of addressing microaggressions. And uh, Harvard did a really large research study on this, and there's many times where you have to call out someone, um, specifically if they are strangers to you, if you don't know them. And examples of calling out include, hey, those aren't our values. We're not going to do that. 
I don't find that funny. Tell me why you think that's funny to you. It sounded like you just said this. Is that what you really meant to say? I need to push back against that. I actually disagree, and I don't see it that way at all. And I need you to know how your comment just landed on me. Mm. But there's another technique called calling in. And this is when you might have a relationship with that person, an acquaintance, a friend, a family member, and you don't want to do harm by calling them out and making them feel other. So you call them in. And some examples of that include, I'm curious, what was your intention when you said that? How might the impact of your words or actions differ from your intent? How might someone else see what you just said very differently? Why do you think that is the case? Why do you believe that to be true? What is making you worried in this moment that you would say that to me? Mm. And it took me a while, Claire, to understand that it's not the person completely where these actions come from, right? It's a learned behavior. Yes. It's something that they have been conditioned to as a protective measure. So they act out with this aggression towards others. And I'm able to look at those individuals now and instead of wearing the mindset of judging them, I've been wearing the mindset of trying to learn from them and from that experience. And I look at them and I think, wow, what happened to you? And I usually say it quietly to myself in my mind. But what happened to you? Mm. So that I can have empathy in that moment and I don't have to choose the same path that they did. Mm. That's such a beautiful, gentle and empathetic way to approach a situation that can be really hard. Um, I think people get really scared to call each other out now because it, the, I hate talking about cancel culture. I hate talking about it, but it's, I think it applies here. Um, we're afraid of canceling or getting canceled. Um, when I think that deplatforming someone who shouldn't have the opportunity to hurt people anymore is different than asking someone, Oh, is that what you intended to say? And I think we need to get over ourselves and get okay with getting called out a little bit when we deserve it. But we also need to learn how to, not come at someone like you're a racist piece of shit and instead say, Oh, exactly what you just said. Like, I don't know that your intentions lined up with what you just said. Um, or even asking, I think questions uh, is a common thread that I heard in what you were just saying, asking them to reflect on what they just said so they can get there themselves. Um, rather than, telling them what you think that they just said because if these people do have shared values with us then typically they could probably get there by taking a moment to reflect on what they just said but once yeah. again i think humility it all comes down to humility doesn't it <laughs> yes and i love that you picked up on that um because it is it's called leading with curiosity mm. it's approaching your existence and your way of being in the world not from knowing, not from assuming, mm -hmm. but from leading with curiosity. 
to give the benefit of the doubt, mm -hmm. to understand that you might not know what this other person has gone through at all. Yeah. Because they don't usually know what we've gone through. Mm. And that doesn't mean letting yourself get walked all over either at all. Um, which brings me to, I think specifically, I think about a teacher or an authority figure or a boss feels like a kind of specific situation, but also a place where I think I have been the recipient of a lot of microaggression is, is from someone who's my superior. And that's, you know, um, do you know if there are resources that someone can be looking for in a school setting or maybe in a workplace setting um, when it comes to a supervisor or a teacher? Would you recommend talking to that person directly? Or do you think that it's better to maybe find someone above them or an HR department? What, what are your thoughts there? I think it's important to know that if you are in a position where you feel like you don't have the ability to talk directly to that person because they are in a role that is above you of some type. Um, if you are at a university uh, and let's say you're a student, then you're going to have that ability to first and foremost reach out to your advisor, let them know that that's happening. Unless, of course, that's the person doing it. Um, but there should be a counseling services somewhere on campus that can also be a safe place to go to have that discussion, to be able to start to open it up. Sometimes on campuses, there is a person called an ombudsman, and that is someone who remains neutral. They're often um, someone who is specifically hired to be able to be the person that anyone on campus can go to with a concern or a problem. Mm -hmm. Depending on the context, you can try to go to the Title IX office and have a conversation with them if it's applicable. Mm -hmm. You can also go to a dean. You can even make an appointment to see the provost and bring it directly to the person who really is running the university. Yeah. And anyone that you're gonna feel is going to listen, is going to take you seriously, is not going to have any doubts in their mind that obviously this is a problem or a concern. You want to go to someone you feel safe. Sometimes on campuses there's a dean of students and you can go to that person. Um, they are also supposed to be removed from the faculty to some degree so that the students can come and voice their concerns. And typically universities will have a whole process of what happens when that occurs. There's a grievance process and conversations and discussions. Um, but the idea is to have an intervention to make sure that that person is safe, uh, that their needs are addressed, and that they're able to proceed forward and be successful if they're a student in their program, if they're another faculty member, to be able to teach their courses, to be able to feel safe on campus. It's not fail-proof, right? And there are people who even after doing all that, have still, unfortunately, continued to experience microaggressions or even downright aggressions towards them. Mm -hmm. That's when you want to take it out to the community. And sometimes it does come down to involving um, authority figures in the community who can help you uh, be able to be protected. Mm -hmm. I always enjoy um, Centers for Teachers and Learning. Uh, on college campuses because they are a place for faculty, grad students, postdocs, 
um, undergrad students, like it's, it's one of those open doors where you can come in and when you don't know what you need, you can go to a center for teaching and say, Hey, this is happening. I don't know who to talk to. Um, those people can point you in the right direction. And the beauty that I still believe in, in terms of, you know, institutions of higher knowledge, hopefully, is that things are changing. It's just taking a long time to grow the awareness needed to understand that it's not okay to have microaggressions on a college campus. It's not okay to have microaggressions in the workplace, in the home environment. It's not okay. In a hospital, in a, in a medicinal environment, not I'm okay. not okay. And there can be someone you can talk to a lot of the time. Also, if you do come forward and you're not believed or you're invalidated, that can be another incredibly hard experience. And if that has happened to you, I want to put out into the universe that I believe you and I'm sorry. Um, and there comes a point where you need to validate your own experience and you need to know how to leave for yourself, how to get out of it, an experience if you need to, if you're not being listened to, to, to walk away. Potentially that could mean leaving, any, leaving a university, I've been there, or um, leaving a job or leaving a living situation. Um, sometimes leaving can be the brave thing to do um, because sometimes those options aren't always safe. And I just wanna recognize that as well, um, that there are a lot of failures of a lot of systems. Um, but it's also encouraging to know that there are people like you working in universities to to try and keep people keep people safe and keep them from having to go to that kind of last resort of an option. Um, so thank you for what you do, Michelle, um, for students, for professors, and just for for the world, the way that you um, the way you approach the world with with your kindness and your empathy is. Yeah, I think it makes things better, just one person at a time. Well, thank you, Claire, for this time to share the space with you and to be present with you, so I appreciate it. And we so appreciate you being there. Thank you all so much for joining in on this conversation. This was a very special one for me, so I hope that you felt the special energy um, made only more so by your presence. Uh, so enjoy the rest of your day, and we will see you next time. Mm -hmm.